0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, a visit to the Atataki Museum on the Big Cypress Seminole Indian Reservation.
1: The policy of the United States was to eradicate us in the 1800s, and we have survived.
0: We'll discover World War II artifacts in Fort Pierce, and remember Florida writer Marjorie Kinan Rawlings.
2: Marjorie always was on the encouraging side and she always told me son you just keep on trying don't don't let people tell you what you can't do
0: all that ahead on florida frontiers
3: Ohi, 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 weha, 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 weha,
4: weha, 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 we
0: Yo 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 The traditional culture of the Seminole tribe of Florida is preserved at the Atatiki Museum on the Big Cypress Reservation in South Florida near Cluiston. The state-of-the-art museum and archival facility features permanent exhibitions and rotating gallery space a research library, and an extensive collection of historic newspapers, oral histories, manuscripts, and artifacts including patchwork clothing, baskets, and dolls. Pedro Zapata is traditional arts coordinator and Ann McCutton is director of the Atatiki Museum. In the seminal language, Atatiki means a place to learn or a place to remember.
5: That's really what we hope to do here at the museum is to um, educate the public but also you know, to keep the traditions and Uh, Culture alive within our own tribe. You know, it's part of the mission statement of the museum, and so that's what we try to do through our programming and through our exhibits and um, through our collection staff and outreach.
4: We want everybody to come in and experience the the things that we have to offer and understand that you know this is a tribal museum. It belongs to the tribal members, tribal collections, but we want this to be the source for tribal. History and culture for people. We want to, um, you know, without being too pretentious, we want to be the place where people can come to get the correct information, to get the, uh, you know, to meet tribal members and to really experience tribal culture one-on-one, whether it's walking through the boardwalk and then sort of experience it on your own or meeting with a tribal member or a tribal elder or somebody and learning things that way.
0: In the 1700s, Lower Creek Indians from Georgia and Alabama migrated into Florida, blending with remnants from some of Florida's indigenous tribes and runaway slaves. By the 1770s, this group of people became known as Seminole, which means wild people or runaway. Throughout the 1800s, a series of three Seminole Indian wars took place as the U.S. government sought to expand its territory and recapture runaway slaves. By 1858, only two to three hundred Seminoles remained in the swamps of Florida. In the 20th century, the Seminoles capitalized on the state's growing tourism and remained active in citrus growing and the cattle industry. Today, the Seminoles have expanded into the hotel, restaurant, and gaming businesses as owners of the worldwide hard rock franchise. Willie Johns is outreach specialist for the Atatiki Museum.
1: The policy of the United States was to eradicate us. In the 1800s, and we've survived through all the onslaughts of maybe four different wars, not not including the Seminole Wars, but the Civil War, World War One, because our people were illiterate. And this museum houses all the pictures and all the stories of these people who tried to that did survive, and uh, so. I'm hoping that they, these were, these were real people. They weren't just, uh, you know, we watch the cowboy and Indian stories and the Indians get shot down and they die in front of the promotion picture. This is, this is that, uh, our, you know, our families, we had real families. They had real dads, they had grandpas and they were real people and they, they made a living out of nothing in this, this Florida wilderness. And uh, they fought against Andy Jackson's removal. And uh, in, the, in the 19th century, they moved to the reservations. And uh, they, you, you learned that they, they took with their hands out with nothing and made uh, Seminole Tribe what it is today. And uh, it started with the cattle, you know, and the cattle kind of new made a nucleus for the, our new government, the Seminole tribe itself, to be born. And then from that point on, gaming, and then into national recognition in the world market as a hard rock entity, you know, so... I want them to know that, you know, it just wasn't handed to us, that uh, they, we worked hard for it. Willie Johns travels
0: all over the state using artifacts from the Atatiki Museum to introduce people to Seminole culture. Johns' family did not take many photographs of themselves in the early and mid-20th century. A collection of photographs from the Atatiki archive has allowed Willie Johns to see some of his ancestors
1: for the first time. There's a photo album that was received and uh in the museum and it's in the vault and it's uh a family that was here in the 30s and they rode all over hunting seminoles and and they they found my family's camp in uh blue field and there's uh photos of people that we've always heard of but we never seen them they were they had passed before uh before I was born, and uh lo and behold uh I come to work here, and some of the staff said, "You need to look at this photo album it says John's family," and we got to see these people faces we could put a face with them now now we know who they are, and uh not not just a name, and it's not like a just a spirit out there, you know, so that, that, that brought one family together and said, wow, you know, this is pretty cool. You know, we're, our, our story is starting to tie in.
0: Throughout the Atatiki Museum, life-size figures are used to demonstrate traditional seminal clothing and practices such as hunting, fishing, canoeing, and performing the green corn dance. Wood carving, jewelry, and baskets are also displayed. Traditional arts coordinator Pedro Zapata
5: myself, I really like to focus on some of the Seminole traditional arts that are maybe a little bit more endangered or, or being revived or people trying to revive them. Um, so like, I really like the couple of, um, palmetto baskets that we have on display. And, you know, that's something that my family used to make, um, is from salt palmetto stems, the, the baskets. Um, cause if people know anything about Seminole art, usually they're affiliated with the, uh, sweetgrass baskets. Um, but that was something that we didn't develop until the tourist trade after the turn of the century. And these palmetto baskets were our, our work baskets and our ceremonial baskets. You know, those are the ones we use in our day-to-day lives. And so, you know, I think the couple we have on display are, you know, really fine examples of those baskets and, and uh, you know, another part of our tradition, you know, before um, before the tourist days.
6: We also have um, uh, Osceola's bandolier bag.
5: Saul Drake
0: is curator of exhibits at the Atatiki Museum.
6: Which was supposedly uh, in his possession uh, for a period of time. And that's incredibly powerful um, for Seminole uh, uh, tribal members to be able to see that um, and connect that to a a very strong portion of history in the Seminole tribe. I know when we got our accreditation, we actually um, had it displayed in uh, tribal council quarters and that 's kind of a, a symbol, a symbol piece of how and how far the Sentinel tribe has come, struggling uh, you know against the u s government and, and now um, to really become a, a strong entity you know so it's, some of the things that we have uh, in the museum uh, collection are also incredibly powerful symbols of of sovereignty and of uh, living on on your own terms.
0: One of the rotating exhibitions at the Atatiki Museum is called Postcards and Perceptions, Culture as Tourism, and shows how the Seminoles fueled Florida tourism in the early 20th century. Saul Drake.
6: And these postcards that we have um, highlighted within the exhibit, uh, which were mass-produced, mass-marketed, and sold all over the United States, are actually uh, representations of these real people that lived during this time period, you know? And we have uh, tribal members who will come in the museum and be like, oh, that, you know, that's my grandmother, oh, that's my great uncle. And it's such a strong connection because in lieu of actually having a f- family photograph, we have these postcards you know, that are actually showing um, tribal members. Um, so it, it's, it's a very powerful thing uh, to show uh, other uh, tribal members that you know we, are, we have this stuff, you know, we want you to come and be a part of it, and even identify some of the, the people um, Within it, because without that sort of connection, uh, it's just kind of a postcard seminal, you know. And you don't want that. You want to have everybody named, all the clans named, you know, kind of the backstory behind what it actually is. And that with what Pedro was saying before, that's what we're really trying to do is to bring more people in and to really try to get that connection going, because um, it makes our uh, museum uh, a lot stronger part of the community as well if we have that connection.
0: As with most museums, only a small portion of the Atatiki collection can be displayed at one time. The museum has a high-tech preservation and storage facility and shares items with the Smithsonian Institution, the Museum of Florida History, and other organizations. Robin Kilgo is the Atatiki Museum Collections Officer.
7: So we actually have over 15,000 objects within the historic collections of the museum. Um, They range anywhere from historic newspapers to oral history recordings to manuscripts to letters to more things that we call artifacts, which would be more historic dolls, baskets, um, a large collection of patchwork and beaded items. So we have quite an extensive collection, and in some cases we probably have the most extensive collection of seminal items or southeastern items in the country. We actually have a research library. It's open by appointment only. People can come down and make an appointment to come do research within our collections. Um, We usually ask to have a rough idea of what people would like to look at before they come down because um, oftentimes we'll get just the question of, yeah, I'd like to write something about the Seminole. And that's a very large question. So usually we try to get kind of a direction as to where they're going if they're interested in dolls. Patchwork, something along that line. But we're definitely, we love to have researchers come down and take a look at our, what we have.
0: Also, part of the Atataki Museum is more than a mile of boardwalk that takes you to a living Indian village and ceremonial center. The visitor experiences the natural Florida while learning about how the Seminoles interact with the environment.
6: We have uh, Plex out there, which kind of, um, they're ethnobotanical signage, and they kind of give you a little bit of background on the plant itself. Uh, whether or not it's um, invasive or, uh, or a, a native plant to the specific dome there. And then it also gives um, some cultural information on um, how the Seminole used it in the past for various, um, various needs. Um, uh, both The plant, the plant is uh, both, um, the name of it is all in, in Creek and also in Miccosukee, so there's that translation as well.
0: The Atatiki Museum is on the Big Cypress Seminole Indian Reservation near Cluiston. It lives up to its name as a place to learn and a place to remember. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit our website at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, check out our calendar of events, shop for great Florida books, and become a member of the Florida Historical Society. FHS members receive the Florida Historical Quarterly and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org.
7: Get your gun, get your gun, get your gun, take it on the run, on the run, on the run, hear them calling you and me, every son of liberty, hurry right away, no delay, go today, make your daddy glad to have had such a lad, tell your sweetheart not to pine, to be proud, her boy's in line, over there, over there Send the word, send the word over there That the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming The drums rum coming everywhere
0: The song oh, Over there. there was written in 1917 by George M. Cohan and was popular in both World Wars. Janie Gould has discovered some World War II artifacts displayed near Fort Pierce.
4: Hi, I'm Janie Gould in search of hidden history, and today we found it at Round Island Beach Park in Indian River County. Tucked away in the middle of the park is a display of some odd-shaped concrete objects. Now weathered by age and salt and encrusted with barnacles, they're called obstacles of war, true chunks of history. They help U.S. forces train for the D-Day invasion during World War II. One sunny Saturday recently, Bernie Mahoney from Port St. Lucie was visiting Round Island with his family. I'm a big history buff. Did you know about the amphibious forces that were trained in Fort Pierce during the war?
7: I'm not too familiar with it, but this is a great piece of history here. You know, it's good that they uh, keep these things so people will learn. The younger generation
4: Five miles south of Round Island is the National Navy UDT SEALs Museum on North Hutchinson Island. A much larger collection of obstacles used in invasion training stands outside. Michael Howard, a retired Navy captain, is the museum's executive director.
7: These are the real thing that they used right here on Fort Pierce Beaches during World War II. We have tetrahedrons, hedgehogs, horn scullies, and and the ball type of uh, obstacles.
4: So they buried them, and then the object was to remove them so that they could practice landings here.
7: Yes, the mission of the Navy combat demolition units, the forerunners of the SEALs, was to blow up the obstacles on the beaches so the boats, the landing craft, could get the troops in safely and, and let the ramp down and let the, the guys off on the beach. So uh, it's a very difficult mission. Most of these things, you know, as the tide came in, it covered. The objective of the Germans was to hide the obstacles underwater as best they could at high tide, which is when the landing was desirable.
4: We're looking at maybe 20 of these obstacles now, these objects. The Germans, I guess they put hundreds on the beaches of Normandy.
7: Probably thousands. It was layer after layer as you came in to the beach. They were both at Omaha and Utah Beach. We have photographs inside the museum that shows just how thick these obstacles were and all varieties to uh, try to stop the landing craft.
4: They thought it was impenetrable, but the Navy was able to create lanes, landing lanes, on the beach.
7: That's correct. We have a map inside that shows the lanes along Omaha Beach that the combat demolition guys were supposed to clear. So it was a very difficult mission. That's really the first mission of the uh, forerunners of the UDT SEALs. These men suffered over 52% casualties combined on the beaches of Normandy, Omaha and Utah Beach. They still accomplished the mission, so it's was very... Uh, High tribute to a very tough group of men who were determined to complete their mission under very, very severe conditions.
4: Obviously, they were the first men on the beach, and if they hadn't gotten there, nobody else would have.
7: That's kind of been the mantra starting from World War II right up to today is uh, the SEALs, D D T men, are the first on the beach, they're first into action.
4: The Navy base on North Hutchison Island was closed after the war, but some of the large concrete objects remained buried on local beaches for decades.
7: One of my good friends grew up in Fort Pierce. They would drive a dune buggy down the beach and ski behind it, and he remembers certain spots where they knew they had to go out, you know, seaward of them or come in on the beach, otherwise they would, you know, get hurt on these obstacles that were all out in the surf zones. They're all out of the water now, and we're real happy that they're here at the museum and at Round Island. We have a gun in placement here beyond the beach, firing past the obstacles and the boat offshore, trying to come in and negotiate through these obstacles.
4: Michael Howard is director of the Navy UDT Seals Museum in Fort Pierce.
0: Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report.
6: Say a
0: send the word, send the word. be, well. We'll be over. over, and we won't come
6: back till it's over over
0: there. This is Florida Frontiers. The lives and customs of backcountry Floridians have never been more eloquently described than in the works of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings. Rawlings wrote about the people and landscape of north-central Florida, where she lived, wrote, and tended her orange grove until just before her death in 1953. Bill Dudley talks to a man who remembers Marjorie as both a close neighbor and a confidant who, in part, shaped his formative years.
2: Marjorie always was on the encouraging side, and she always told me, son, you just keep on trying. Don't, Don't let people tell you what you can't do. So she was a tremendous influence.
3: That's writer and artist J.T. Glisson. As a boy, he formed a lifelong friendship with novelist and short story writer Marjorie Canan Rawlings. After she and husband Charles Rawlings bought 72 Acres in Cross Creek, a small rural community southeast of Gainesville in 1928.
2: Ms. Rawlings and Charles Rawlings moved next door to us at Cross Creek when I was one year old. So I grew up with them living 150 yards to their house, but that's next door at Cross Creek.
3: In the years before World War II, young Jake listen would often spend time with the family's literary neighbor, helping out around the place, especially after husband Charles left Cross Creek in 1933, the same year Marjorie published her first novel, South Moon Under.
2: They came up to the house one day and announced that he was leaving, and he shook hands with my dad and said that, Good a friend as I've ever had, but I'm leaving, and I uh, would appreciate it if y'all would be kind to Marjorie. She wants to stay on. My dad said, well, you'll be coming back, maybe. He said, no, no, we agreed uh, I won't be coming back. We didn't hear from All we knew was he caught the southbound train in Island Grove.
3: Glisson was just the right age to have been the model for the character of Jody in The Yearling, for which Rawlings won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1938. By then, she was also a very successful short story writer who, while professing a dislike for city life, could still indulge her fondness for certain civilized comforts.
2: She always had a new Oldsmobile. There's a thing about her that in all of her writing, she gives this impression of the struggling author. She never had an Oldsmobile over two years old. The truth was, I was in charge of getting out of being stuck. She had absolutely no respect for a sand bed, Florida mud or sand. I rode with her down in the scrub. We'd get stuck. I dug the car out. She collected plants and samples. On one occasion, I told her, I said, you know, Ms. Rollins, if you don't gun it, so. And she said, are you telling me how to drive? Oh, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. She said, don't.
3: Glisson remembers his father's frequent dealings with the strong-willed and often hot-tempered writer.
2: After Charles left, she would hear something that my dad did or whatever, and she would come wheeling up to the house and skid in where we had set grass out back in those days. She would get out and she would proceed, Tom, Glisson, you so-and-so, so-and-so, and you did this, and, man, she would blow her lid. My dad found great humor in it. He just, and my mother would say, you're just baiting your own. Never more than three days would pass. I uh, would announce that Daddy Miss Rollins is coming up the road. he says say, is she walking or driving? I'd say, well, she's walking now. He said, she's coming to apologize. And she would come up and she would say Tom I made a damn fool out of myself I uh, am sorry for this and I won't apologize and my dad said well you said Charles is going you got to raise hell at somebody so don't feel bad about it
3: the boy continued his relationship with the author well into his teen years
2: I could tell her anything there was no such thing as her being shocked things you don't tell your mama and you don't tell your daddy oh I could tell tell her with uh, no reservations at all.
3: When World War II began, Jay clisson was anxious to join the Army Air Corps. Marjorie wrote a glowing letter of recommendation.
2: I have known him all his life, and I consider him of precisely the caliber you desire for this program. Now, here comes the good part. He has courage, poise, initiative, brains, adaptability, and high integrity of character. Very sincerely, Marjorie Kenan Rawlings. My brother, when he saw the copy of it, he said, no damn wonder she got an award for fiction.
3: (laughs) The war years were eventful ones for Marjorie. Marrying her second husband, Hotelier Norman Baskin, in 1941, she published her autobiographical book, Cross Creek, the following year. The book was well-received, but in 1943, she was involved in a libel suit brought by another member of the community, Zelma Kaysen, who had been described unflatteringly in the book. An attorney had convinced Kaysen to sue for a share of what was described as Marjorie's Millions.
2: We all knew Zelma. She was a good friend. We went to church in Island Grove with her. But she came to my dad right after she started the suit and told my dad, said, uh, Tom, I'm suing Marjorie, and we're going to get a lot of money. And if I win, you can sue and you can get a lot of money for what she said about you. My dad said, no, now wait, Zelma. My dad said, you know better than that. Marjorie Rollins is from Cross Creek. She's one of us out here. He said, I can assure you that everybody at Cross Creek, though she didn't say flattering, nice things about us, actually she treated my dad better than anybody else. Uh, she said she didn't know whether he could read or write, but she did say things about people that would be embarrassing to their grandkids or something. It became the, the Scopes trial of Latchewa County at that time. All of the publishers, they sat down, you couldn't rent a room in Melrose. They all poured in down for the trial.
3: The lawsuit dragged on for five years. During that time, the war ended and Jake Lisson returned home to the creek.
2: I walked in at my house and my dad met me on the porch of my mother. Crackers aren't very emotional. They don't have a lot of hugging and so forth. My mother did actually put her arm around me and said she's glad I was home. My dad slapped me on the back and said, Son, your mama's got dinner ready. Let's go eat.
3: After a year of running a successful fish camp on the shores of Loch Lusa Lake at his father's bidding, the young man left to follow other more artistic paths. Many believe Marjorie Rawlings' spirit was broken by the protracted legal troubles. She never wrote another novel about the creek again and began spending more time on the East Coast with her husband, Norman Baskin.
2: There was no way she was happy. When she was in St. Augustine, she owned the beach cottage there by Marineland. She couldn't write there, so she would be miserable there. She would come back to the creek to write. But when she was back, she wanted to be back with Norton, and it was a go-and-come sort of a relationship.
3: From time to time, Glisson says, he visited her at her beachfront home.
2: And occasionally I stopped over at her place at the beach, usually to introduce her to girlfriends. Without her approval, I wasn't, she was an authority on that subject. Some of them, she told me, J.T., I think you're making a mistake.
3: (laughs) Marjorie Canan Rawlings published her last book, The Sojourner, a story set in Michigan in 1953. In December of that year, she died of a ruptured aneurysm. She was 57 years old. In his 1993 book, The Creek, J.T. Glisson looked back on his growing up years and his relationship with his friend Marjorie.
2: The last time I saw her was about six It was six days, I think, before she had the stroke. She had become one of my dearest friends, and I flatter myself that I was her good friend. I never enjoyed anyone in my life, enjoyed time more than I did her. For Florida Frontiers, I'm
0: Bill Dudley. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org Join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.